Hello and welcome to Digfin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, subscribe, let YouTube's algorithm know. My guest is Helene Lee, co-founder and CEO of Go Impact Capital Partners, an advisory and investment group focused on sustainability in finance. I spoke with Helene about the big picture of where ESG is with financial institutions and fintech in Asia and what to expect this year. Helene Lee, welcome to DigFinVox. Thank you, Jane. Good to be here. So this is our first DigFinVox of 2023. So uh, welcome and ushering in the new year with you. Wonderful to be here. To You know, I'm very honored to be one of your first uh, guests. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm interested in speaking with you about Go Impact and about ESG and particularly around fintech applications for ESG in the region. Um, this is, uh, I think, going to be sustainable investing and sustainable finance are going to be major evergreen themes uh, for the rest of our careers. Uh, and I, you know, you've been trying to pioneer a lot of work in ESG research, and I think a little bit of investing too, if I if I understand correctly. So, uh, why don't we start with big picture, uh, kind of the state of finance and ESG in Asia right now? Um, where do you see the most promising action taking place? Right. That's a fantastic question and something that I can give a long and a short answer. But the short answer really is that people are moving from the talk to the walk. Mm -hmm. Okay, But that is proven to be a little bit more challenging. Uh, people are more and more seeing there is a green premium versus a brown discount. Mm -hmm. But how do you actually... Um, you know, build initiatives or build product offerings that gives you the green premium or look at investments that give you the green premium. And how do you distinguish among all the greenwashing, brown spinning and all these other colorful things uh, that we come across to avoid the brown discount? Uh, that is easier said than done and something that, you know, uh, education, learning, which, you know, go impact us, plus a lot of other initiatives. Uh, that government policymakers, as well as corporates, and even down to the individual level, uh, are doing. Yeah, so that's the longer hand answer. <laughs> Asia, where the region in which we we live, is made up of very distinct uh, and variated markets and, and countries and business cultures. Um, you're in Singapore. I'm in Hong Kong. Uh, what is the role of these two financial hubs in advancing ESG finance and related tech? Well, both are clearly very important hubs in Asia-Pacific in driving the agenda. But I do think that they approach it in slightly different uh, manners. Uh, you know, no two locations are exactly the same. They have different strengths, different weaknesses. Uh, Singapore obviously looks at the whole ASEAN, Southeast Asian market. Hong Kong has got China you know, on, on the back, you know, on the back, uh, you know, back as the backdrop. Uh, but I think one thing in common that ties the two together uh, are government in, um, interventions, if you like, to build a talent pipeline. Okay, there is a real crunch for green talent. And I think both uh, locations, both jurisdictions are really looking into how can the public and the private sectors work together uh, to bring that talent pipeline uh, for green jobs or greener jobs. 
uh, that much closer. And the second thing is, of course, in terms of finance, right? I mean, Hong Kong is obviously, uh, you know, uh, the leader uh, in terms of raising funds in the capital markets through the Hong Kong exchange and all that. But there's a whole range of other finance related initiatives like fintech that you just mentioned as well, uh, in which there's a very vibrant landscape in Singapore, uh, you know, working on different solutions, whether it be climate tech, waste management, uh, plant-based food, and others. So it's, a, it's an exciting space in which both uh, jurisdictions are really very active in. The, the sense I get, and this is more just my own data points and anecdotes rather than any systemic research, or so maybe I'm hoping you can confirm or uh, amend my observation is that Hong Kong has, uh, we've got the exchange here, which is a dynamo, of course, and uh, very large deep capital markets. And we've got China. So in terms of green bond issuance and listing those uh, and that kind of thing, there's a huge marketplace here. Singapore's always had a much smaller capital market. So just in, you know, even if it's one for one, in terms of uh, the size of their green finance versus their traditional market and the one in Hong Kong, of course, the Hong Kong one will be much bigger. Uh, yet in, in Singapore, and again, this could be just coincidence, uh, I, I've interviewed quite a few companies that are doing a lot of uh, Web3 based, blockchain based, you know, carbon trading and some of the new the, the newer aspects of not traditional capital markets, but rather, you know, maybe on the, the fintech side of things. Uh, and I, I seem to bump into a lot of those in Singapore, often with MAS uh, implicit or explicit backing. Um, so is that correct? I mean, are we seeing basically traditional capital markets being put to use in Hong Kong and Singapore is the more fintech or um, or cutting edge solution side? Um, is that a fair observation? Um, I think it's a fair observation up to a point, um, you know, Jane, because obviously Hong Kong rise on the success of its, you know, uh, being one of the top five, uh, you know, capital markets in the world. Um, so, so that's an obvious strength. And for financial institutions, for the traditional FIs, whether it be green bonds issuance or other investment vehicles, obviously Hong Kong has an edge because of its very mature uh, and developed, um, you know, uh, capital markets. Singapore is... Uh, very much, you know, there's a lot of um, policies uh, that gives incentives for fintechs uh, to work together. Uh, and, um, you know, not just in terms of finance, but in terms of the whole ecosystem support, uh, helping them to, to, to go to market and all that. And the monetary authority in Singapore obviously takes plays a very active role, uh, as we can tell from not just the Singapore Fintech Festival, but also the green uh, green shoots and the green fintech, um, you know, events that they run regularly, I would say is true. And also the fact that they are building very actively the carbon trading exchange, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, in Singapore Impact X, uh, and also the car, uh, the project Green Print, uh, which is basically, you know, um, aggregating uh, a platform that aggregates ESG data, which has been always been a pain point. Uh, for investors. So I think you see all this being very visible uh, in Singapore. Uh, and I think hence that observation is, is really fair to a point. But having said that, I think both jurisdictions, both Hong Kong and Singapore, are very much moving in the same direction in that they want to attract some of the best, uh, you know, green fintech companies uh, to come and land uh, in the jurisdiction. 
and play into different markets. Singapore, obviously, more the Southeast Asian. Hong Kong, obviously, the GBA and Greater China. And there's a huge uh, demand and huge uh, market for climate tech and green uh, in China. So uh, I think both are, uh, are doing similar things, but with different market uh, in mind. What you you touched on uh, the the, um, the the green prints that the MIS has been behind uh, and. Uh, this issue of of data and, and standardization. One of the big problems with ESG worldwide has been lack of global standards. Um, many, many frag, you know, huge fragmentation in this area. So it makes it difficult for investors, asset managers, risk managers to kind of know which benchmarks to use uh, or to agree on, on what things mean. Um, do you see any changes and do you see in, in Asia a, a, a growing movement towards coalescing around certain standards, or is it going to remain fragmented? Um, you, you are spot on, Jane. And I think there are global, not just Asian, movements to try to harmonize uh, the metrics. You know, there, there should be some harmonized metrics globally so that investors uh, and really, you know, uh, fund managers uh, can, can work on it more effectively. If you look at it, there are different frameworks which can be applied. Uh, the most commonly used one for the exchanges, of course, TCFD, the Task Force for Climate uh, Risk Disclosure, uh, you know, put forward by the United Nations. There is also the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI. But all these are have 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 different um, perspectives mm -hmm. that come into play when it when it comes to reporting and disclosure, and it's almost you know challenging for companies to decide on the right framework for the industry sector without a harmonized set of metrics. So I'm very glad to say that uh, the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, uh, which is being driven by the global you know, audit body, which is the, um, you know, the International Financial, uh, the Accounting Standards Board, which makes sense because for financial reporting standards and audit standards board to come in and try to harmonize based on the existing set of parameters, uh, a globally, um, you know, integrated, if you like, uh, set of metrics that would go a long way to help. Now, it's still work in the progress. It was just announced at COP26, which was like two years ago at Glasgow. And they recently, um, you know, um, put forward, um, you know, a, a framework riding on the other uh, frameworks that I just mentioned. But I would say watch this space very closely because the ISSB, uh, I think, is better positioned than most uh, to put together the harmonized metric that the sector has been really waiting for. Okay. So that is, I guess, tentatively good news for the industry to, to get some clarity around what, what they need to do and what reporting needs to be done and what that looks like. Correct. Uh, it's work in progress, but it's definitely a move in the right direction, I would say. What does that mean then for... Uh, the kinds of investments that financial institutions should be making into their systems, into their capabilities and their talent. Um, what are the, the skill sets that uh, that banks and asset managers and as, as well as, I guess, listed companies and corporates are, are looking for? Right. Um, if I can just unpack that question into three layers, okay. um, you know, um, first at the board and leadership level, okay, at the board and C-suite level. Um, there is probably a different set of, you know, learning and use cases that you need to enable the board directors and the C-suites to understand how that is important for the business. 
and you know what are some of the risks they need to mitigate what are some of the opportunities they need to capitalize on so that's one set and then that should cascade onto the managers and and the, the more broadly the staff uh, level mm-hmm. that uh, in order to equip the different business functions to be all you know moving in the same direction so that you know ESG or sustainability is not just the business of the chief sustainability officer okay it is you know it, it, it makes sense for different business functions to be uh, on the bandwagon at the same time so that requires a, another different set of uh, learning so that's more for all the staff and last but not least I think it's also the advocacy towards the other, the, the third party stakeholders that the company might have. Uh, it's not just putting out a, a report at the end of the year because the, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange or the SGX, the Singapore Exchange, requires you as a LISCO to do that. It's also about communicating with your clients, with your service providers, with your vendors, and the third party stakeholders at large. What are your initiatives and how you would like to work together with them, uh, you know, on that. So those are the really the three important layers in which learning uh, can take place. And uh, yeah. So uh, you're reminding me of something I heard from someone else recently, and I forget who it it was who made this observation. So it's not my original one, but I think it's a good one. And uh, you, you know, you were previously the general manager of the Hong Kong FinTech Association as well as uh, coming from finance. So I think you'll have an appreciation of the of this, which is that, uh, you know, ESG or sustainable investing today and the hiring and the, the transformation that has to happen is very similar to, let's say, five or six years ago when firms were looking to go digital or try to understand that. So, you know, the first step was let's hire a, a digital officer and then, or, or set up a lab, right? And uh, and then the rest of the organization was oblivious or hostile to, to this whole thing, right? And then gradually, or maybe not gradually, maybe quickly, because of, of competitive pressures from the fintech sector, uh, banks and other institutions began to, to move more aggressively. And then, of course, we've seen some, some of these institutions like DBS and UOB and so on become a lot more sophisticated with, with their digital uh, capabilities. Um, do you see something like that happening with, with green or ESG? Is that a is that are we going to see the same thing or there's or are there going to be some tweaks here? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, before you know, in my banking days, which was right in the era of digital transformation, uh, that was the the buzzword. Um, I used to say that don't just put digital lipsticks on. You know, it's not going to work. You need to have it. You know, ground up. You know, bottom up as well as top down. Now. Uh, people are putting green lipsticks, you know, for lack of a better word, although that won't look very nice uh, on. <laughs> but um, I think the pressure is slightly different. It's um, with the digital wave, it was more the fintechs who are trying to, you know, take the breakfast or lunch uh, off the FIs. Here is the policymakers, the regulators who are pushing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the COP27 and up, upcoming COP28 really around the corner, you're looking at a serious sense of urgency of the agenda, which the digital agenda didn't have uh, apart from market competition. Uh, So I do think that this is going to move a lot faster. But for it to move faster, people need to realize that the skills framework is going to be very important. There are different skill sets, both generalist skill sets, as well as specialist skill sets in terms of like carbon accounting, you know, the measurements, uh, of your carbon emission, uh, you know, that are very specific. 
uh, and also the CSO, the Chief Sustainability Officer, that needs to be a strategic thinking generalist kind of job that knows the latest uh, you know, trends and the lay of land uh, in the development of the space. So there are different, you know, various, very different and, and diverse skill sets that you need to equip people with. In in some of these spaces, uh, firms are also grappling with, you mentioned uh, accounting. So in the carbon offset market, right, the voluntary carbon markets, um, you know, essentially people investing in in projects uh, or in, in perhaps in companies, uh, how you turn that into something that fits onto a CFO's balance sheet, uh, mm. I believe has been tricky. Uh, do you see any change there? And what's, what's making it possible to better integrate um, ESG or green assets or liabilities or intangibles uh, in, into, into something that, that people can measure and fit more, more easily? I think the whole, you know, carbon exchange has been really the, the huge challenge there is, of course, the discrepancy in carbon pricing globally. As we know, there has been a huge difference between the most expensive and the cheapest uh, countries for carbon pricing. And that leaves a lot of problems in terms of, you know, uh, uh, arbitrage uh, and all that. And so is that, can I just understand that dynamic a little bit? So um, a carbon price in, say, a rainforest-rich country like Indonesia would be very different than in, um, I don't know, South Korea, for example. I don't know. I'm just trying to pull, pull names or pull something out of my hat here. Um, is, is that what we're talking about? Like the, the, that those countries that basically have carbon credit assets uh, have a different pricing mechanism, just like Saudi Arabia for oil has a different way of, of looking at that asset versus a, a non-oil producer. Yeah, that is one dimension that mm -hmm. drives the price, but there are also other dimensions that are sort of political, uh, uh, you know, uh, tied to the economics of the specific country. For instance, Sweden has one of the highest uh, carbon pricing. And obviously, uh, the reason for that, I mean, Sweden is a, is a wealthy country with a very small population. Uh, it's got a very stable uh, economy, uh, you know, and so there are all these other factors that comes in uh, to that. And Sweden and the Nordic countries have been doing quite well in terms of their own greening of, you know, their, their in, uh, uh, environment and initiatives. So, so the demand for carbon would probably be very different from a country like, say, Indonesia or, you know, other countries. So there are various, you know, um, factors driving the carbon pricing. But that huge discrepancy obviously makes it very challenging for carbon exchange to work effectively and transparently. Uh, the other thing about it is people look at this as like one of the hottest things to get into, but we must put it into perspective that this is only one of the solutions. This is not the silver bullet right. that is going to, you know, suddenly, you know, we are going to stop, you know, global warming because of this. Let's look at it, you know, at the emissions, unless we significantly cut that, it's still going to be there, whether you have offsets, you know, it, it, there's no net net positive if you just do, if all you do is offsetting. Right. Um, so, so, so offsetting is one of the solutions, but it's not the only one. Uh, and I think we probably need a more, we need more ammunition in the toolkit uh, in order to tackle these, you know, urgent problems. What, what, what's the single biggest uh, change that could make a real difference? 
You know, again, this could be my personal opinion, but I think it takes a lot of small baby steps to make the change. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of focusing just on one giant leap, which will be very painful for the economy, for the companies, focus on concrete baby steps that if we all take collectively uh, across sectors, that's going to make a huge difference. So Do I'm we actually- have time? Does the next generation have time if we're just thinking baby steps? We never have time. You know, we wake up to this quite late, I would say, but we are actually the first generation to wake up to it, but probably the last that can do something, you know, to halt the problem and to prevent it from being like, you know, simple disaster for the generations after us. But I do believe that all the baby steps added together uh, would make giant steps. Um, little baby steps could include, you know, individual habits. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it could include corporate mindsets uh, in terms of, you know, the, the way they do business, the way they look at embodied carbon, for instance, uh, and the way they look at it, that we're all in it together. Let's face it, you know, the scope one, scope two, scope three of carbon. In scope three, your carbon is my carbon, okay, upstream and downstream in the whole value chain. No no one operates on an, on, on an island of his own. So, you know, yours is mine and is his. So the more we can work together, the better. Do you see financial institutions taking that scope three seriously in the way they account for financial or, or other uh, or credit risk? Uh, right now, I think there is move in that direction because I'm pretty sure that um, you know the regulatory push for scope three disclosure will be coming soon. Okay, mm -hmm. it's not there yet, but you know once it comes, it's gonna just you know hit all of us like that, and I think everybody is gearing up towards that. And people are seeing the brown discount. Uh, if you continue to try and hide away from, from that and be very incomplete or biased in your disclosure, uh, it's all going to come back and bite you uh, at some point in time, your investors, the fund managers. So it affects your access to capital. It affects your access to talent. Well, this is a DigFin chat. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the tech side and the, the fintech side. Um, what do you, what do you think? When I when I talk to people in this space, it tends to be the, either people in the data space, uh, or it tends to be people in a blockchain space, and that tends to be on the, the more bleeding edge. I don't know how really important some of the you know because you you know you already mentioned that we can only go so far with carbon offsets. That's just where a lot, of the, a lot of the blockchain stuff is. But nonetheless, the idea of provenance is is very interesting. What what do you see going on? Uh, am I missing anything? Um, and and you know what what could make make an impact uh, from from a tech or a fintech perspective? I think tech is a huge accelerator. You know, it also provides a wonderful toolkit, you know, a toolbox uh, for people to use in order to move the agenda faster. Because as you said, time is our common enemy, right? It's the, it's the, it's the biggest enemy for this agenda. And with a lot of AI, big data, data analytics, you can actually hone in on the specifics of GHG emissions and others and manage it better. Uh, so I do see that uh, that will be a very useful way in which tech uh, can be an enabler and an accelerator. But apart from that, I think it's also the, you know, tech can also be used as like, you know, for the, for the, for the younger generation in, in, at the university level or, or the graduate study level, uh, there can be more, uh, you know, work streams, more, you know, a specific degree giving or, or postgraduate studies in environmental science that I'm seeing that would really help 
uh, the agenda as well, because the more talents we have uh, being trained uh, in that, uh, the better chance we have, the more ammunition we have to fight this uh, collectively. If you were going to be, um, if you were an entrepreneur looking to set something up in this space, or perhaps as, a, as an allocator looking to invest in startups, uh, where would you, where would you think there's the greatest opportunity? I would say AI and data analytics, mm -hmm. probably the combine of the two. You need, you need the, the, all the satellite data and others, and you need the analytical tools to be able to do it very quickly. Uh, and very efficiently. So a lot of deep learn, uh, a lot of other AI tools uh, together with the data, I think would, would be really essential. Are we seeing success stories? Because these also need to be, you know, these companies need to make money if they're going to be able to provide these solutions long-term. I think there are various people, you know, drumming up interest on different fronts. Uh, there are, you know, various FinTech that we've come across both in North America, in the Nordics as well as in Asia, uh, but I haven't, but but not an outright success story, you know, as such that comes to mind. Maybe it's still a little bit early days. Um, what are the specific skill sets that people can bring to this story? Or if someone's interested in, you know, maybe refashioning their career to be doing stuff in ESG or or ESG fintech, um, what what are the viable skill sets or experiences that they can bring to the table? I think in terms of experience, they can come from different, uh, you know, functions uh, in their previous career. Uh, obviously, it helps if they have been in two major areas, like communication. If they are a strong communicator, they can be a good advocate for the agenda. Or if they come with a finance and engineering uh, background, uh, it also obviously have uh, essential skill sets that they can bring to the table. The interesting question about that career transition, that is something that we're working very closely, both in Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, you know, on. Uh, th there's a whole career transition program towards greener jobs that we have mapped out. And the whole framework is really built around two streams, uh, the generalist stream uh, and the specialist stream. And under the generalist stream, uh, it would include things like not just a, you know, baseline understanding of what sustainability E, S, and G can mean, but also reporting disclosure, what are the latest uh, supply chain that hits every industry? What would uh, decarbonization of supply chain mean? And on the specialist, it would be carbon management, uh, carbon accounting, uh, and other uh, you know, um, specialized topics. So th there are, uh, you know, our, our firm has been involved in building a series of these career transition programs that help companies to actually, uh, you know, have homegrown talent uh, that can be, you know, future future ready, I would say, uh, for this. Although, you know, they might not, you know, be have a degree in environmental science. Yeah. So you're co-founder of Go Impact, Helene. Uh, what should what what do you think we'll be able to look back a year from now and and see that your firm was able to accomplish? I would say more of these programs being rolled out, but also more importantly, uh, I think the work of everyone in the space is really to make our you know what we are currently working working on redundant in the sense that if you work in sustainable investments or sustainable finance, ultimately you would like to see that sustainable finance as the term is redundant, right? right? That every form of investment would take account, would take into account sustainability and ESG. 
So that would be the ultimate aim. Great. Um, and any um, that's obviously a long-term, ongoing, continuous process of, of transformation at the industry level. Uh, any milestones um, in either Hong Kong, Singapore, or elsewhere that we should look out for that would give us uh, encouragement that the industry is, is making good, good progress? Well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, um, obviously, in terms of uh, the overall uh, ability of the different um, jurisdictions to to attract uh, green capital, you know, in, in there is one uh, of the KPIs. Another one is, of course, the ability to fill green jobs, you know, which means that the talent pipeline is healthy. And then you have people that have the skill set that are ready uh, to, you know, to move along. Uh, you know, um, to contribute to the agenda much faster. Okay, so that's what we should be looking for the way in terms of being able to measure success, capital, people. I would say those are the two things. And of course, tech, let's not forget. Tech is something that really gels all these together, the, the huge accelerator that will make things move faster. Yeah, I, I, might, I might tweak that, just say it's obviously we need enablers of innovation to raise productivity and, you know, really hammer home results so that this isn't just a compliance tick the box exercise, but actually something that becomes super useful to financial institutions and hopefully something that guides them to, to, to perform well. Yes, 100% Jane, totally agree. Great. Well, on that note, um, Helene, I want to wish you and our, uh, our audience a uh, happy 2023. Um, and a little bit early, but I guess we could also say, um, you know, good year of the rabbit coming up. So wish everybody a happy new year. Thank you for joining me on Dish Vox, Lane Lee. Thank you so much, Jane. <laughs>